Hey, good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1? If you're uh, new with us, welcome. But I uh, want to let you know we have just started a study on Sunday morning here at Calvary through the Gospel of John. Now, um, we don't have to really guess why John wrote his Gospel. He tells us that in chapter 20, verse 31. I've written these things that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, when you read that, you might be prone to think that John only wrote to unbelievers, hoping that they would get saved as they read his gospel. Well, you'd be wrong. The theme of John's gospel is life. Fifty-four times he uh, talks about the life that Jesus gives. As we have talked about this in the past, the word he uses for life is the Greek word zoe, and it's a life that means, excuse me, it's a word that means spiritual life, spiritual life. In other words, the life of God is what it really is talking about, and uh, this life comes to a person the moment they believe in and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. At that moment, they are connected to him through the Holy Spirit, or in other words, they have union now with Christ, union with Christ. That's what salvation is. Now, what is this life? Well, this Zoe life, we've tried to define it uh, in the past. It's a little hard to nail down because it has so much, it's so rich, that we have to try to define it using several terms. Zoe life is really life in all its fullness. It's a dynamic life, a fruitful life, a joyful and fulfilled life. It's a life that Jesus said in John 10 was abundant, and David in Psalm 23 said was overflowing, as he went on to say, my cup runs over. And yet, this is a life that many Christians are not experiencing on a daily basis. Why? I mean, as Christians, they have union with Christ, right? They're saved, of course. So why then aren't they experiencing this abundant, dynamic, overflowing life that Jesus promised would be theirs? Well, it's because for this life to flow in and through a child of God on a regular basis, a Christian must remain connected to Jesus on a regular basis. In other words, guys, union or salvation is where everything begins. It's like um, taking a hose and connecting it to the spigot and turning it on. When you gave your heart to Christ, you were connected to him by the Holy Spirit and that started the flow of God's life flowing from him in, into and through your life. But look, union is only where it begins, right? We have to remain connected to Jesus every day through communion, all right? Communion. And that's just a word that means um, to have this oneness with him, this, uh, this relationship that is deep, it's vital, okay? I mean... If you walk away from the Lord, if you get in sin, into sin, you're going to disconnect yourself from Him on a practical level. Kind of like that hose illustration, all right? I mean, you can have the hose connected to the spigot, the water flowing, but if for any reason that hose gets disconnected, of course, no water is going to flow through it anymore. The same thing is true with us as Christians, all right? We need to stay connected with Christ every day if the flow of the Spirit is going to constantly keep flowing in and through us or into us and overflowing us. That's what David meant when he talked about my cup runs over. He's talking about a life, the life of the Spirit. 
a life that is connected to Christ, uh, a life that allows the Spirit of God to, to fill me, overflow me, and the idea is to overflow me and then touch others around me. Jesus talked about it as living water in John 4. A lot of the things that we're talking about in the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, he reintroduces and expands upon later on in his Gospel. So it's uh, very important that we understand this. And uh, here's something you have to be careful uh, of not doing. It's a pitfall that a lot of Christians fall into. When you first got saved, again, you were connected to Christ. You have union with Him, right? And you remember how it was when you first received Christ as your Lord and Savior. I mean, it was awesome, wasn't it? It was incredible. There was so much emotion, so much passion. You were so filled with joy, with peace, with love. You wanted to tell everybody about Jesus, right? You were in church all the time. Well, again, if you don't maintain that walk with him, you can, fellowship can be broken as we get involved with sin, compromise, whatever. Or if you're just not as faithful as you used to be, you're not really in the word like you used to be, or uh, talking to the Lord in prayer, or going to church on a regular basis, if that happens, again, your relationship with him or your, your, the flow is, is disconnected. You're not, you don't lose your salvation, but you really are disconnected from the flow of God's spirit in your life. And as a Christian, that's what we want to keep walking in. Well, what happens is once you disconnect yourself and the spirit is not really flowing in and through you as he once was, the tendency is to want to recapture that emotion that, uh, you know, all the passion and joy that you used to have, especially when you first got saved. And so here's what Christians do. They tend to then chase after emotions, passions. You have some Christians who are perpetual feelings and emotion junkies. They're always looking for a high. And uh, what happens is they keep, you know, they keep, running here and there, trying to find some new thing, some new teaching that will allow them to, you know, recapture all that emotion, that passion that they once uh, had when they first got saved. Let me say this to you, okay? Zoe life comes not only from Christ, but really it is found only in Christ. Th this is the the pitfall that a lot of Christians don't understand. It's not that Jesus just gives this life. Listen, he is this life. He is this life. Inside the sun, there is life, spiritual life, eternal life. Outside the sun, there is no spiritual life, only eternal death and separation from God. If you find yourself disconnected from Christ on a practical level because you're not really walking with him the way you used to, don't fall into the pitfall of pursuing the dynamic, overflowing, abundant life is a direct pursuit. You're going to be very frustrated and you're going to wind up, the devil's going to use it because he's the king of emotion. He's going to try to capitalize on that desire to recapture those feelings and he's going to direct you into all kinds, and he has, oh my goodness, we are living in a day when you can't believe the weird stuff Christians are getting involved in, all because they've been promised they're going to enjoy that that spiritual fullness again. What they're really looking for is emotions. Pursue Jesus. He's the focus. He's the, if you pursue your relationship with him, if you pursue communion with him every day, he called it abiding in him in John 15, a great chapter on this topic. 
But here's the thing. If you make Jesus the focus, if you keep pursuing your relationship with him, as you find yourself in him, abiding in him, all these other things are going to come bubbling up in your life. You're not going to even pursue these things. They're going to come as a byproduct of the joy, the fulfillment, the abundance, the overflowing life. It'll all be yours as you keep connected to Jesus in communion. This is the thing, right? Communion with him, communion with him every day and you're going to experience this life every day as it will constantly flow in and through you again like rivers of living water. You don't want to... And the devil, you know, he, uh, he's patient. He waits until the honeymoon's over, you know, and then he begins to slowly work on you, trying to dangle the things of the world, trying to get you to think that, you know, you're missing out on things. Uh, you know, maybe some of the emptiness is because the world does have some things that, you know, will satisfy you and so you're kind of like Solomon you know you love God but you're off looking for happiness in all the wrong places and so on don't fall into that trap don't fall into that don't be a feelings junkie just focus on Jesus keep drawing close to him and uh, you will enjoy the constant flow of his spirit uh, in your life so guys the theme of John's gospel is life it's life uh, the eternal spiritual life that only comes through Christ. He wants unbelievers to receive this life. He wants believers to walk in this life every day. But that is the theme of his gospel, life. Now listen, as we've just said, this life only is found in Christ, but the true Christ. No phony Messiah or false Christ has spiritual life, the life of God in them. We know that. And yet, there are many false Christs that had already come in John's day, and he knew many others would come after him, that would all claim to be the true Christ, uh, sent from God to give them eternal life and everything else. We see him even in our day, right? I mean, there have been uh, many who have come down the pike, even in the last 150 years, that have claimed to be the true Christ of God, and promising people all kinds of wonderful spiritual richness and life and so on. We have to be on guard against these false Christs. That's why John, in wanting us to receive life, but knowing it only comes through the true Christ, he starts his gospel with a very important 18-verse introduction uh, called a prologue. Theologians call it the prologue. And uh, it's really a, a, a mini-course in Christology. Christology is, the study, uh, is a study on the nature and person of Christ. And... Uh, John wants you to have life, but he knows it only comes from the true Christ. Let me tell you who he is, John is saying. Very important little mini crash course on Christology. And we've been working our way through that on Sunday morning. And so uh, John opens his gospel by giving us seven attributes or distinguishing marks of, a true, of the true Christ so that no one would mistake an imposter for the genuine Christ of God. Christ means anointed one. Uh, same is the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one. Uh, same idea, the anointed one, the one sent from God, the one that he promised uh, many years ago that finally appeared on the scene in John's day. But uh, seven points to this outline on Christology. I'll just read the ones we've covered so far. We've looked at the, the eternal preexistence of Jesus Christ. All of these prove Jesus is God or at least was sent by God, okay? The eternal pre-existence of Jesus Christ, the equality of Christ with God, the oneness 
the oneness of Christ with God, the, omnip the omnipotence of Christ. Omnipotence means all power. Uh, Jesus Christ is all power, has all power, demonstrated in the fact that he created all things. And then last week we looked at the life and light of Christ. That, guys, then brings us to the sixth point in our outline on John's crash course in Christology, one I'm calling the herald of Christ. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, of course, John the Apostle is talking here about John the Baptist. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, why does John stop talking about Jesus and suddenly bring up John the Baptist? I mean, I thought this was a course in Christology. Look, this is absolutely consistent with John's presentation of the true Christ. You see, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that before Messiah the King would make his appearance in Israel, he would first be preceded by a messenger or a herald. Malachi 3 verse 1 we read, Behold, and this is the Messiah, actually Jesus talking, Behold, I send my messenger, my herald, uh, and he will prepare the way before me. Look, this was very common knowledge back then, but whenever a king was going to visit an area of his kingdom, they would, they would send out a herald uh, several weeks, if not months in advance, to announce the king's coming. And the idea was the herald was to go to the people of that area and to tell them, look, the king is coming, let's straighten things up, get those yards cleaned up, fix that fence, the road's got a lot of ruts and holes in it. Fill that in. Let's make ready for the king's coming. We don't want the king to come and find things a mess. This is a very important time of preparation. Look, get everything ready for the coming of the king is the idea. Well, John, the apostle, in his presentation of Jesus as the true Messiah, the king that God had prophesied was coming, uh, God foretold in his word that before the, the king, the Messiah, would come, uh, that he would send a herald, a herald. John the Baptist was that herald. You're not going to prove that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah if he's not got a herald, because they all knew God promised a herald was coming before the true Messiah, the true Christ. And uh, John became John the Baptist became that herald. Only John the Baptist didn't tell people to clean up your yards and, and clean up your houses. He told them to clean up their hearts and their lives. How? Through repentance. John preached a message of repentance. We'll talk uh, more about that in detail as we move a little further into John's gospel. But um, what, do we, what do we really know from Scripture about John? Well, as we just read in... Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 6, that he was a man sent from God. In Matthew 3, verse 1, we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching. The Greek is a word that means heralding. Uh, in the wilderness of Judea, he came preaching or heralding in the wilderness of Judea. So we know that John was sent from God to preach a message from God. To, this, to the world that John lived in. Guys, that made John the Baptist a prophet. 
someone who spoke on behalf of God. In fact, not only was John a prophet, Jesus himself said in Matthew 11 and Luke 7, he was the greatest prophet that ever lived. We read in Matthew 3, verse 1, that John came preaching, listen, in those days, what were those days? Well, we know from history they were dark days for the world morally and spiritually. At that time, the pagan world had lowered itself so deep into moral decay and spiritual darkness that even the history tells us that even the pagans were crying out for relief. Things had gotten so bad, morally speaking, uh, it was so decadent that even pagans were crying out that they needed to see some changes in their society. It's pretty bad when the world is crying out, uh, this is so immoral that we need some changes. But guys, these were not only dark days for the pagan world, they were also dark days spiritually for the Jewish people. You see, for the last 400 years, God had been silent. For 400 years, there had been no prophet in Israel saying, thus says the Lord. After Malachi finished his prophetic ministry, you might say heaven went silent. God went off the air. And because there was no prophetic word from God during this time, the theologians call this period the 400 silent years. And you have to understand, the silence was so deafening to the Jewish people, it caused many to believe that God had forsaken them altogether. I mean, their hearts were broken, and their hopes for a coming Messiah and kingdom were dashed. And so month after month, year after year, listen, century after century, God was silent. Again, a silence that was deafening to the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden, as God does, isn't it? I mean, things are so bad, you're praying, you're praying, and nothing is changing in your life personally. It goes on sometimes for years, you're praying for your husband to get saved, or your wife, or your kids. And, and year after year, and it seems like God is silent, and all of a sudden, God speaks. And you, you realize that God was at work this whole time. So month after month, year after year, century after century, God was silent. And then all of a sudden, the silence was broken and God began to speak once again. And guys, he did it through a most unlikely character. A man living out in the wilderness wearing a kind of modified Tarzan outfit, living on locusts and wild honey. We know him as John. He was the son of a very godly priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, who were well advanced in years, we're told, had prayed for a son for many years, had no doubt given up, oh, maybe 30 or 40 years prior to that. They were probably in their 70s or 80s when suddenly the angel Gabriel came and visited them and said, God had heard their prayer. Heard my prayer. That was 40 years ago, Lord. Don't you know our prayers stay in God's active box? They don't just evaporate, okay? For everything, there's, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Okay? And so all of a sudden now, in their old age, Gabriel appears to them and says, God has heard your prayers. Elizabeth, you are going to conceive and you are going to bear a son. You are to call his name John. He is going to be great in the eyes of his people. He's going to turn the hearts of many children back to the fathers. He's going to prepare the way for the coming one that God has prophesied was coming. And again, Jesus would go on to say that John would be the greatest prophet or was the greatest prophet who would ever live. And guys, he wasn't great because of the miracles he did because John didn't do any miracles. 
He was not great for the miracles he did. He was great for the message he preached. What was that primarily? Well, yes, repentance, but here's the deal. John had the privilege of closing out the Old Testament period, the Old Covenant. You say, wait a minute. John was a New Testament guy. But Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 16, that John the, John the Baptist, Baptist was technically the last prophet of the Old Testament period. He closed out the Old Covenant and had the privilege of handing off the baton to the messenger of the New Covenant, Malachi 3, verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. That's what made John so great. He did no In fact, it says, I think in John 10, this man did no miracles, but everything he spoke about Jesus was true. That's the kind of ministry you want. Forget the miracles. Although I would love to see miracles. But you know what's going to make a preacher great is that everything they say about Jesus is true. They're a faithful witness, right? Now, look. Again, who was this guy? Okay. He's a very, emblemat- a very uh, enigmatic uh, person. Who was John? Um, why, why, why was he so important to the ministry of Jesus? Okay, what, what, what was the distinctive qualities about this man uh, that made him so great? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that John was a voice crying. Turn to Matthew 3. Who was he? First of all, he was a voice crying. Matthew 3, verse 3. Jesus said, For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John was a voice crying in the wilderness. Why was he a voice crying? Well, because in the wilderness, people don't hear so well just like today. I don't have to tell you, but we are living today in a spiritual and moral wilderness. A time in our nation's history where everyone is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. It's a time when people are calling good evil and evil good. The very thing God said in the Old Testament was a precursor to judgment. Whenever a people becomes so morally corrupted, so morally inverted, where they call good evil and evil good, That is a people that is right there on the precipice of judgment. And because people are so jaded by sin today and so dull of hearing to the word of God, well, listen, speaking in soft, gentle tones isn't going to get their attention. I'm not suggesting that we literally shout God's word to the people of this world. Can I get anywhere shouting at people? Literally. But we definitely need to proclaim God's word faithfully, unashamedly, and listen definitively. There can't be any confusion on our part. There can't be any ambiguity. We've got to know what we believe. And we need to know well enough to share it truthfully, definitively, no apologies. Now, you can share the truth in love, yes. But make sure you share the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Guys, this is not a time, and unfortunately it is, but it shouldn't be a time for weak pastors to, pre- weak, to preach weak messages from watered-down pulpits so as not to offend or to, you know, 
um, you know, to tiptoe around sin, to not make people uncomfortable. So a lot of churches who are, their whole ministry seems to be not to say anything to offend or make people uncomfortable because, good heavens, they might not come anymore. And then we're, how are we going to pay for this gigantic thing we got going here? We need John the Baptist today. Men and women who are not afraid to speak the truth, to shout it, because we're in a wilderness. And I'll tell you what, in the wilderness, people are so dull of hearing, we have to shout. Figuratively speaking, we have to shout. We have to really make sure people hear what we have to say. We can't tiptoe around issues, right? Whisper. Uh, You're not going to save anybody like that today. People are just too dull of hearing. Look, guys, again, we are living in the dark. First of all, we were born into it, and it was born in us. That's true. We were children of darkness at one time, but then when we received the gospel of Jesus Christ, we became children of light. At that point, the darkness inside of us was replaced with the light of God's truth. But guess what? We still found ourselves living in the moral and spiritual darkness of this world, which is still all around us. We are living at the close of an age, and I believe this age is coming to a close very rapidly. The age of man's rebellion, a new age of Christ ruling is coming. But we are living at the close of an age that is dominated by the prince and powers of darkness. A world where people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Again, the good news is the night is far spent. The day of Christ's return is at hand. But listen, as somebody has said, it's always darkest or blackest before the what? Before the dawn. The darkness has never been more pervasive or persuasive in my lifetime than it is today in our nation. But not only that, here's the problem. Not only do we live in the dark, listen, so many Christians have gotten used to the dark. I mean, we've all had the experience of walking into a very dark room where all we could see was blackness, but after a few seconds, what happens? Our eyes adjust. And we get used to the dark. And unfortunately, this has happened to many Christians spiritually and morally. I mean, we're all experiencing, this is the devil's work, we're all experiencing a slow, subtle, and sinister brainwashing process that is gradually desensitizing us to the darkness. I mean, little by little, sin is being made to look less and less sinful, isn't it? Little by little. And it's happened over the last 50, 60 years, not overnight, But little by little, sin is being made to look less and less sinful until the light that is in us is darkness. And as Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The result is that we, and I'm speaking we in general of the body of Christ, the result is that we as the church of Jesus Christ no longer hate evil. We say we do, but we don't abhor evil as we once did. In other words, we've gotten used to the dark. When Scripture says that John was a voice crying out in the wilderness, guys, it implies a sense of urgency and concern for the lost. John had a crying voice because he had a caring heart. And let me say this to you. If you really love someone who is in grave danger, you'll cry out, you'll shout, you'll do whatever you have to do to warn them. Look, 
we, I think most people in this room believe Jesus is coming back soon, right? And we all have people that we love that are still in the darkness. This is no time to be timid. This is no time to be whispering. It's a time to be shouting from the housetops and pleading with people to be saved. So, first of all, John was a voice crying. Secondly, he was a finger pointing. After John, as a voice crying, got their attention, he became a finger pointing. Look at John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Listen, behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, John was a truly humble man. I mean, think about it. This is a guy that had probably thousands of people flocking to his ministry. But John was a humble man. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. He wasn't in it for his own personal glory. He found his joy and fulfillment simply in being, being a finger pointing, pointing others to Jesus and saying in John 3 verse 30, He must increase, I must decrease. Too many so-called ministers of Jesus Christ while they point one finger at Jesus, they're really pointing three back at themselves, aren't they? I mean, it's all about them. You, you can see it just in the way they, they preach. Is they're, you know, strutting back and forth, you know, doing their little theatrics across the stage there, right? It's all about them. It's all about their visibility, their, their you know, publicity, their, you know, celebrity kind of a thing. They must increase. And as they are always pushing themselves up, increasing themselves, well, Jesus is being decreased. He's being diminished. Until it's not the Savior that people are drawn to in their ministry. It's not the Savior that people are drawn to, but the celebrity on stage. You know, wearing the $1,500 Armani suit with a diamond pinky ring, right? You know what? There are too many celebrities. Jesus called us to be servants, especially pastors. There's too many celebrities in the body of Christ today. And I'm also including these young hipster pastors, okay? You know, the ones that wear the skinny jeans? That's why I can never be a hipster pastor. <laughs> I've accepted that. But um, I see these guys. You know, and they're just so full of themselves. You know, they're strutting around with their skinny jeans on, being all hip, cool, you know, using mild profanity because I can connect with people. I'm a regular guy. They'll see I'm a regular guy connecting with them. Look, the body of Christ in these last days doesn't need a cool pastor. They don't need cool pastors. They need holy pastors. Holy men of God. People that aren't looking to make a name for themselves, but people who are wanting to draw attention only to Jesus and to glorify him. Guys, this was not the testimony of John the Baptist. He wasn't looking for glory for himself. He was a humble man. And even though he had, he, uh, he had huge crowds coming to him to see him, uh, when Jesus showed up, when Jesus finally came on the scene, well, 
He was happy to direct everyone to Jesus, pointing the finger. Here's, here's the one I was telling you about. Now, everyone focus on him. I'm going to fade into the shadows. I'm not important anymore. My, only, my whole ministry was to introduce you to him. Here he is. He must increase. I must decrease, and so on. That was the heart of John. Guys, look. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then you need to be humble. You need to humble yourself and become a servant to all, lifting up Jesus, making him the focus. I'm so thankful for the pastor I had. What an example he was. And I remember him saying one time, you know, when I die, if you guys dare to name anything after me, I'm going to come back and haunt you. I don't want churches named after me or buildings. or I don't want any of that. You know, I feel the same way. It's not about me or any other man, woman on this. I don't care how phenomenal their ministries are. At the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. He must be the focus. We must fade into the shadows. He must be center stage all the time. When people leave this church, I am hoping and praying you don't say, that pastor, what a... I'm hoping you say, that savior. What an awesome Savior we serve. Because I don't want to do anything to draw attention to myself. Look, first of all, John was a voice crying. Second, he was a finger pointing. And finally, he was a lamp burning. Turn to John 5. Jesus said this in commenting about John. John 5.35 he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Jesus said that John was a burning and shining lamp. And guys, this speaks of John's life being a witness, a life that was burning brightly for God. Turn to Matthew 5. You remember what Jesus said on this, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount? On this subject, he said in Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 14, speaking to his disciples, he said, You are the light of the world. Now, earlier he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the true light, right? That gives light to every man, woman coming into the world. He's the true light. When he said, You are now the light of the world, the Greek word is a word that we get our word phosphorus, or um, photo from phos is the Greek word. And it means light, but not a light that is inherent within us, a light that was put there. It's like Jesus is the source of light, and I'm a Coleman lantern. When I accepted him, he lit a fire in me because his spirit moved inside. Now I become a light. You become a light to this world. But we don't have any light within us inherently. It, the only light we have is the light that Jesus brings when he comes inside of us. And now he says, now that I've lit you, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light under a bushel. You know, men don't light lamps to put under a bushel or a bed. They put it on a lampstand that gives light to everybody in the house. So let your light shine that others might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, when Jesus lights our lives, when we get saved... We are not to hide out. We are not to be closet Christians. This, guys, is nothing more than a big bushel. It's a big box. 
And if the only time we let our light shine is when we come here and sing songs and talk about Jesus, but then go out into the world and we hide our light, we're ashamed of being a Christian, uh, embarrassed that people would, would think we're Bible thumpers, what good is that light? You only let it shine among other believers. It's not doing any good at all. John didn't hide his faith. Oh, yeah, he took heat for it. They said he was nuts. Okay, living out in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, yelling, yelling at everybody, you know, repent and so on. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a nut job. What's going to write this guy off? Look, John was not crazy. John knew exactly who he was. He didn't hide his faith. He lived it openly and publicly. And at least they, they didn't all agree with him, but at least they all knew where he stood. They, at least everyone knew what John was all about. Let me just say this. Please don't miss this. You realize you can't be a voice crying and a finger pointing if you're not a lamp burning. What does that mean? Too many Christians are very verbal. They're bold. And at work, they're always talking about Jesus and witnessing about Jesus and passing out tracts, uh, you know, and all. But they're not letting their light shine. They're not really living an authentic Christian life. Uh, they're telling off-colored jokes. They're hanging out with the guys after work and having a beer at the local bar. They're not really letting their light shine, and because of it, they're not being a friend of the world. They think, oh, I'm, just, you know, I'm just trying to show the guys I'm one of them so I can witness to them. i got news for you. The guys think you're a hypocrite. You try to be a friend of the world, try to be like the world, to reach the world, i got news for you. The world is going to write you off as a phony, as a hypocrite, and they're not going to listen to another word you say. If we're going to be a voice crying and a, and a finger pointing, we had better be a lamp burning. We had better let our light shine. We had better, I mean, you know, do whatever we need to do to, to walk with the Lord that when people see us, no, we're not perfect, but they see we're authentic. They know where we stand. We're not hypocrites. We don't say one thing and live another way, all right? Let me just say this in closing. John was effective in his ministry because of everything we just said. That's true. But also for two other reasons. I'll give them to you quickly. First of all, John was effective because John was focused. John was focused. John was the kind of man who knew what he was supposed to do in life. He, he knew what God had called him to do. And he didn't let, listen, anything distract him from his ministry. Turn quickly to Mark 1. Mark gives us a little summation of John and his ministry. Mark 1, verse 4. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had turned to God to receive forgiveness for their sins. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River his clothes, clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. Notice where John lived. He lived out in the wilderness, okay? He lived a life separate from the world he was trying to reach. I want you to understand this. He could have 
been supported by the wealthiest people in Jerusalem. He could have ministered in the finest houses in the area. He could have wore the best clothes, ate the best food, all paid for by those sponsoring him because John was the first prophet in 400 years. I mean, the, he could have totally been a celebrity if he would have allowed himself to let people think of him as a celebrity. I mean, John knew. And he was a man just like anyone in this room. Although he was self-aware. What do I mean? He knew that materialism and money, I mean, not that they're evil per se. But he knew that those things can distract from the real importance, from what's really important. When I'm serving God, what's really important is that I let nothing get in the way of my ministry and I stay focused. Uh, as Paul said, man, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. Uh, my whole goal in life is to finish the course, the race that Jesus gave me to finish. Paul was focused. And that's why he could say at the end of his life, I have finished the work God gave me to do. I wonder how many Christians can say at the end of their life, I have finished the ministry God called me to do. A lot of Christians don't even know what their ministry is. Why? Because they don't really seek the Lord. I mean, seriously. Lord, what have you called me to do? Because whatever it is, I want to spend the rest of my life doing it. I mean, John, man, he could have been the biggest celebrity in the area. Wore the finest clothes, Armani robes, you know, uh, the best food. Uh, lived in some kind of a beautiful palace-like mansion that no doubt somebody would have put him up in. But John knew if he would have succumbed to that materialism, it would have, it would have, uh, it would have diluted his passion for what God called him to do. And so he stayed separate from the world to reach the world. Guys, this is a fundamental principle that the church has lost when it comes to reaching the world. Today, a lot of pastors think that to reach the world, you've got to become like the world. And so you have churches meeting in bars. Uh, afternoon services are around beers and wine because we want to connect with people. Yeah, you have churches that have given themselves over to what's called uh, beer and hymns services, where they're, they're singing praises to God while they're knocking back a brew because we're showing people we're, we're just like them, right? Let me tell you something. The dynamic of the church is not in its likeness to the world, but in its separateness from the world. We find this all throughout the New Testament. The people that have been most effective for the Lord in their ministries are, are folks that didn't look down on the world. I mean, they know they're, they're in the world. They, we have to live in the world. But we don't have to be of the world. We don't have to be of the world. That's the thing. I have to be in the world. I don't have to be of the world. Read Daniel 1. Daniel was in Babylon. He didn't have to become part of Babylon. He purposed in his heart not to be defiled with the king's delicacies and remained a He lived a separate life in the midst of the decadence in Babylon. This is, has to be our heart. We are living in a very dark and decadent world. We don't have to let the darkness uh, come into our lives. We can be a light. We can remain separate. The only way we're going to reach the world is to remain separate from the world. That's one of the reasons John was so effective in his ministry. He remained separate from the world as he sought to minister to the people in the world. And again, guys, the devil will dangle all kinds of little baubles in front of us to get us to buy into the concept that, you know what, 
the world has things that will make us happy, so why can't we serve God in the world? That is a real pitfall. Because Jesus said you can't do that. And if you try to do it, you'll wind up serving the world and not the Lord. So if you want to be effective, you've got to decide. Uh, like Joshua. I mean, you know, today I'm going to pledge to serve God only. Uh, me, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so on. So say what you will about John. He was colorful. But he was focused. Okay, he was focused. And number two, and we won't really develop this because John develops this uh, in his gospel in several places, so I'll just throw it out to you for your consideration. Not only was John focused, one of the reasons he was so effective, he was also spirit-filled. Luke chapter 1, verse 15, as, as Gabriel is talking to Zacharias and Elizabeth, uh, John's parents, he's telling them, uh, telling them about this child that they would soon have. And verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be, listen, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Guys, part of the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that same Greek word filled is uh, connected with other things in the Bible. It means to be controlled by, all right? They were filled with joy, controlled by joy. They were filled with anger, controlled by anger at that moment. When it says that John or anyone else is filled with the Spirit, part of it means we are being controlled by the Spirit. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine, we're in success, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What is John's, uh, Paul saying? He's saying you can be under the influence or the control of different things. You can be under the influence or the control of a, uh, back then of a wicked master or something else. But especially in our society, we see a lot of people under the influence of the control of alcohol. I mean, even when somebody is driving drunk and they're pulled over and the officer you know, determines that um, they are drunk, he writes them a ticket, DUI, driving under the influence. And Paul is saying, don't live your life under the influence of alcohol. But live your life under the influence of the control of the Holy Spirit. And of course, he goes on to explain, or John does, uh, in his uh, gospel, uh, various ways that that is interpreted in our lives. So we'll save it for that point uh, when we get there. But let me just end with this, saying this. We are living at a time, again, that is not unlike the time John lived in. He was literally in the wilderness of Judea. We live in a moral and spiritual wilderness. And even though we call ourselves a Christian nation, it's obvious we are living in a post-Christian era. And yet God loves the people of this world, and he has lit our lives with the truth of God's word and all, and has sent us out into this dark world. We need to be John the Baptist. We need to be a voice crying, right? Because we care about people. And it doesn't matter what they think about us. I just want to cry out, to, look, you need Jesus. And then, of course, we get their attention, we become a finger pointing pointing them, not to our church even, uh, not to the Christian guru that we're listening to, to Jesus. A voice crying, a finger pointing, but none of that's going to matter if you're not a lamp burning. If you're not living an authentic Christian life, letting your light shine, because you're really living what you claim to believe. If you're really living, if you're really being a light, it's going to add much power to your proclamation that Jesus Christ has come, he has died for your sins, 
If you receive him, he'll give you new life. And when he comes the second time, he will take you to be with him forever in his kingdom. That's a great message, isn't it? It's a message of hope. All right? You think I'm putting my hope in Washington? You lost your mind? I pray for our leaders. I don't look to our leaders to get us out of this mess. The only one going to get us out of this mess is Jesus when he comes. So uh, let's be faithful in being someone who, who cries out, who points to him, and who is a, a lamp, a light burning that all might see that we belong to him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, for men like John the Baptist. And Lord, many others have come like him, men and women, who have been totally sold out to, for you, to you. Uh, people that don't let the world, in fact, some of them are very wealthy, but they don't let their wealth um, distract them or dilute the message. And Lord, whatever you give us in the way of prosperity, and money is not evil, um, working hard and, 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 and having material things, that's not wrong, it's not evil, as long as we don't, you know, we can own things as long as they don't own us. Amen. Give us grace, Lord, to use whatever resources you've blessed us with for the glory, uh, for your glory and your kingdom. And Lord, we just need your strength. These are the last days. These are dark days. Give us grace to be a light that people will be drawn to the light, that we might then tell them about you. And uh, hopefully, Lord, they will accept you and uh, become a light as well. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to please continue blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.